Let's pray. God, traditions and religion, (laughs) they seem like churchy words, but they're the very things that we use to keep you in a box. They're the things that we get comfortable with, that we think that we understand you and who you are and how you work in our world. But the fact is, God, you are always trying to shake those things up and to show us that you are so much more than whatever it is that we try to reduce you to. So, God, I just pray that in this place, in this time, this message, that, um, God, you will make yourself clear to us, that we will be able to get another little bit of a glimpse into who you are and how much you love us and how little we really do truly understand you. And so, God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for this chance we have to look at the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for everyone that you've gathered here this morning. We know that you set divine appointments. And so, God, we just pray that you would make yourself clear to each and every one of us in the way that you need for us to see and understand and know you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So thank you. I'll echo Cindy's words. Thank you for... uh, Setting your clocks correctly, understanding that it really was that time when your alarm went off, and then braving the extra two inches of snow we got to get here today. Um, Thanks for being here. We're going to talk about Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. Ezra is going to make an appearance just at the very end of the message. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, we're going to look in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. Why are we looking at Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah is a leader. We've talked about how all of us are leaders in different ways. But Nehemiah had a very specific, a very interesting task. Nehemiah was, uh, worked for a king. He was a cupbearer, which meant he tasted everything before the, the king drank it. You might think, well, that's a pretty good job. He just sat around drinking wine all day long. Well, his job was to make sure the wine wasn't poisonous. So, But he had an interesting call. His call was to leave the king and the kingdom that he was living in. And to go to Jerusalem, the historical home of his faith, the Israelite people, it's called Judah in this text, and to be a part of rebuilding the walls, God called him to something very, very interesting, very unique, rebuilding the walls and reclaiming the city, something that's still awfully relevant for our world today. It, It turns out that rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, when we look at the text, is an awful lot like planting a church in our world today. See, the same tactics that the enemy of God used in the book of Nehemiah to try to stop Nehemiah, to try to slow down his progress, to try to throw he and the people off, they're the very same tactics that the enemy of God uses against Christians today. It's the very same tactics he uses for you if you try to speak up, whether you go to school or whether you're at work. When you try to speak up and to to proclaim the name of Jesus, the enemy has a playbook that he uses against God's people all the time, and it just doesn't change. And it seems that it doesn't change because it works. And if you decide to stand up or speak out or to live for Jesus, that playbook will come into, into action in your life. And so the two things that we're going to talk about as we look at Nehemiah and then our world as a result of it is the word opposition and prayer. Because really the only thing that you can do to fight godly opposition is to give it to God in prayer. And so why is it then that, that the enemy of God reacts to the people who are trying to serve Jesus? Why? Because what we're seeing in our world over and over and over is that when a Christian stands up, when a church speaks out, when a politician tries to invoke the name of God, there are parts of our world and people in our country that go absolutely crazy because we actually dare to say that there is a higher power 
There's a, there's a greater standard. There's more of an expectation than what we have for ourselves. And so the playbook, it's as real today as it was in Nehemiah's time. It has been since the beginning. But here's the thing. There's no one and there's no thing on earth that can stop the work of God in our world. Nothing and no one. When God sets out to accomplish something, God will see it through to completion. That includes what God is doing in your life. There's a reason we've got God at work up on the wall and we've had it there for so long. God is at work in our world. God is at work in our church. And God is at work in you. And the only thing that can stop God from being at work in your life is you. The enemy of God, the opposition, can't stop God accomplishing in you what God sets out to accomplish. Because God doesn't falter and God doesn't fail. And when you decide to speak up or to live for Jesus, He will not fail you either. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Nehemiah 1, uh, first chapter, first verse. We're going to go through it really quickly. Note takers, I'll try to give you the highlights so you can uh, write them down and go get them later. Um, I don't know if it's old age, so it's good retirement reformation is coming because in my large print Bibles, the, the numbers for the verses are really small up here. So I'm going to give you the verses when I can see them, and when I can't, you'll be able to find them. Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, verse 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Nehemiah was so cool back in his day, he had a memoir. He actually is the guy that wrote the book. He's writing about this going to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. It says in the autumn, some people came back to him. They'd been to Judah. Judah is the Old Testament name for the city of Jerusalem. It's from the tribe that was given that piece of land. They came back to him and he said, how is it? How is the city? And they said, oh, Nehemiah, it's bad. The wall's down. The gates have been burned. They've been destroyed by fire. It's in great trouble and disgrace. Verse 4, when I heard this, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said, and he begins a prayer. Here's the thing. Nehemiah doesn't just get upset. Nehemiah becomes a man of action. This person brings him this message, and the city of his ancestors is laying in ruins. The wall that's there to protect the city, the gates that were there to open and close to let people in and to keep them out, had been burned to the ground. Nehemiah is hit with a godly discontent. There is something about this that doesn't sit right with him. But what he doesn't do is complain. He doesn't try to point the finger at someone and say, Oh, those horrible people, I can't believe it. What he decides to do is he mourns, he fasts, and he prays. And then he said, and it goes on to his prayer. And so uh, starting in the next uh, second part of verse 5, we're not going to read the whole thing, but here's what his prayer amounts to. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, he starts out with adoration. Nehemiah gives us this great example of a form that we can use for prayer. He's not trying to catch God's ear or impress him. Nehemiah is letting God know that he knows who he is. He says, look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. And then he does something interesting. He says, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly not by not obeying your commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. He wasn't even in Jerusalem. The walls aren't down because of him. But this is important for us in a little bit. He starts by confession saying, this is my part and this is my family's part. Rather than shifting or assigning blame, he says, this is what we've done. Basically, God, I recognize it and I'm sorry. 
And then he goes on and he says, please remember what you uh, told your servant Moses. He goes on and recounts God's promises. And then finally, he gets to the petition. He says, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to my prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. What an incredible example of prayer. The first thing we learned about Nehemiah, he's humble. He's humble. He's the guy that God is going to call and send to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. But Nehemiah is humble. We hear that in his prayer. So he's working for the king. He's the the cupbearer. He's the guy that tastes the wine, anything else that the king uh, has to drink. The good news is for Nehemiah, he happens to be serving a king that people really like. And what we're about to find out is the king is a really nice guy, but Nehemiah has asked for favor from the king because he's about to ask him a pretty big question. He walks in with the king, walks into his court, and he says, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. The king knew Nehemiah. He actually paid attention to him. And Nehemiah says, then I was terrified, but I replied, he's been praying. He's ready to go do this. This is his plan. But he's terrified anyway because he's asking a whole lot more than he's ever asked before. You hear me a lot stand up here and say, God asks us, God God challenges, commands, expects us to go tell people about why it is that we go to church, why it is that we believe in Jesus. It's called evangelism. It's sharing your faith, sharing your testimony. It doesn't sound like that big a deal, but it's terrifying. If you've never done it, it's not an easy thing. But then I follow it up and other preachers like me, we say, well, God will give you the words. You just got to be willing. Nehemiah is an example of that being true. He says, I was terrified just like you and I are when we've got to talk to someone. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king, this awesome guy, looks at Nehemiah and he says, how can I help you? Well, Nehemiah is ready. He says, with the prayer to the God of heaven. Remember I said there's two things we're going to see a lot of. Opposition and prayer. Again, while he's there, with the prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king... And if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. There's nothing in Nehemiah's past that says that he's capable of doing this. He's a cupbearer. He's not a military commander. He's not a construction guy or an architect. He tastes wine for a living. And he says to the king that God has put it on my heart. I've got to do something. I can't just pray. I've got to act. And so often as Christians, that's where we draw the line. We'll pray about it, but we don't act on it. And Nehemiah says, this is so not acceptable to me that I have to do more than that. And so he prays and he just flat out asks the king. And it says, the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone and when will you return? After I told him how long I'd be gone, the king agreed to my request. Amazing, this guy gives him a leave of absence. And then he does this thing that I recognize it in our language where he says, what if? You hear us talk around here, what, what if God blesses that idea? I, we believe that's from God, but what if he blessed it? We can't afford it, but if God's calling us to it, what if he makes that happen? I love the phrase, what if, because what it does is it doesn't put any boundaries on God. What if God wants to be behind this? Who knows? God might bless it. So what he goes on and says, I also said to the king, If it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province of west of the Euphrates, instructing me to travel safely through their territory. Another letter to Asaph. Oh, by the way, I'm going to need a whole lot of lumber, so let me take down trees, 
because I've got to rebuild the fortress, and also I'm going to need a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because of the gracious hand of God was on me. He understands it wasn't about him. It was about the God that he was praying to. So it says, goes on, he says, When I was, uh, came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen, men with chariots, to protect me. But then it gets into that other thing we're going to look at, opposition. But when Sanballat the Heronite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. He had the king's blessing, he had protection, he had God on his side, and he still faced opposition. When you do something for God and you step up, stand up, or speak out, you will face opposition. It's, it's just simply a guarantee in our world. So these two guys decide that they're not very happy about it, and there's the arrival of the opposition. The next thing he does at the end of chapter 2 is he takes a silent assessment of the city. He walks around. He takes a look at everything. He wants to survey the damage for himself so that as he formulates a plan and as he starts to gather people, he can make the best use of his resources. And as it goes on, he explains to the people what's going to happen, and they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they begin the good work. So often, all that it takes is one person to say, what if we did? Or how about we do? Or maybe what God would want us to try is this. One person says yes, and there's other people that go, yeah, that's a great idea, but they didn't want to step out on their own. What we find out is Nehemiah is a leader. He's brave, he's bold, he's courageous, and the people instantly say, we'll follow you. It's a great idea. Guess what happens? Sanballat, Tobiah, and they've added another one. Geshub the Arab uh, heard of our plan. They scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? See, that's part of the playbook. The playbook is the enemy always twists everything. The enemy always lies. The enemy takes a little bit of truth, and the enemy completely turns it around and gets people to believe something that isn't true at all. And that's what these guys are doing. They start out questioning him, and the next thing they do is they already start to lie. They start to put doubt in people's minds. Nehemiah's response is, The God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. This is what I find interesting. He doesn't argue with them. He just simply speaks the truth. See, he doesn't need to argue because he knows that if this battle is going to be won, if the wall is going to be rebuilt, it's God that does it. All of chapter 3 is about him gathering up the people and using the resources and assigning different people to incredibly appropriate sections of the wall that they would want to protect anyway, and they start doing the work of building the wall. Chapter 4, as progress is being made, Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage, and he mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked across the top of it. What does Nehemiah do? Then I prayed. Hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. 
May their scoffings fall back on their own heads. The opposition is increasing. It's ratcheting it up. They started out questioning, and then they start twisting. And now publicly, so everybody hears, they're mocking, they're making fun of. They're trying to cast doubt. In verse 7, when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashbadites heard that the work was going ahead, what's happening here? They're increasing their numbers. Opposition is growing. Why? Because the work of God is moving forward and people are getting scared. It still happens. As that was going on in the gaps of the wall of Jerusalem being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we, what do you think they did next? Prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. As their success grows, the opposition grows. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we'll swoop down on them and we will kill them. See, we don't kill people so much anymore. Some places do. Some people think that's okay. But usually what we go for now is character assassination. If you can ratchet up the talk, if you can ratchet up the gossip and the lies and the garbage and everything, you can assassinate someone's character. And before you know it, you've just canceled them. And we live in America, the land of the cancel culture. And that's essentially what they're doing here is we're just going to get rid of them. Because what they're doing is taking away our ability to control this city. They don't want it to go to God. So often when people step out to do something great for God, the opposition is nothing less than just simply afraid. And then what happens is the people start to complain. And the opposition goes from being people from the outside of the Israelite people to people inside. If we talked about it in our world today, it was church people. Church people started to complain. They started to question. They started to be the ones that caused the problems. They started to be the ones that made life difficult. And so often what happens, it's the people that you least expect to be the opposition who end up becoming the ones who oppose you the greatest. Chapter 6, verse 1, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, they had gotten so many they don't even name them all, found out I had, re- I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained. Though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates, so Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the uh, place of Ono. What they're doing is saying, you know what, you're one of us. We'll accept you now. We want to be friends. You know, they kind of start to flatter him rather than saying that you're one of them. Well, now you're one of us. But Nehemiah says, I realized they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? God gave him the gift of discernment. And sometimes that's the only thing we have to be able to figure out who it is that's working with us and who it is that's working against us. Four times they sent the same message, and the fifth time, Sanballat's servant came with an open letter in his hand, and this is what it said. They've gone from flattery and including him to blackmail. There's a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that's why you're rebuilding the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you've appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you, look, there's a king in Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king, so I suggest you come and talk it over with me. Rumors, gossip, lies, everything that they can use to stop the progress. And Nehemiah's response, there's no truth in any part of your story. You're making up the whole thing. 
They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could do discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. My phrase is, you know what? He used the opposition as fuel for the, ever, for the effort. They go on and they talk again about how do we go about killing these guys. They just simply don't want them to be able to continue. And then in 52 days, after 52 days' time, the wall was rebuilt. The gates were in place, and Jerusalem was again a city. God's holy city was protected. The people inside didn't have to fear the people on the outside. And then something amazing happened. They built a tower in the middle of the city. And as the people are beginning to occupy Jerusalem, Nehemiah realized there was one thing that they were still missing. They were still missing their foundation. They were still missing where they came from. And so Ezra the priest came. And Ezra the priest stood on the tower and he opened the the book of God. He opened the Old Testament, we'd call it, right? The first five books. And he started to read and he reminded the people of who they were and whose they were. And the Bible tells us that they fell on their knees. They had forgotten. They had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten where they came from. They had forgotten not only how this great work had been accomplished, they had forgotten why. And it's so easy when we get caught up in the opposition of the enemy to forget about why it is and they even started opposing us in the first place. Because what the enemy wants to do is to get you to take your eyes off of God. Because if he can get you to take your eyes off of God and fear him, then you can, he can see you start to lose your hope in God. And yet the people said, why didn't we know? Where did this come from? How have we not heard this before? The walls rebuilt. God's word is spoken. The people repent. And Jerusalem comes back together as God's holy city again. So what what in the world does this have to do with our lives, right? Rebuilding a wall in Jerusalem this many thousand years ago. What does it possibly have to do with your world and my mind? Fair question. What has been broken in your life? What are the broken walls? What are the broken relationships that were there to be protecting and to be cared for by you? What what are the people who represent relationships that maybe are now burned bridges that you had a good thing with some time ago and today don't even talk to? Is God calling you to repair Broken walls and burned bridges before you can really go on with your life. See, God can do anything. He could have established a new home. He could have established a new city. He could have used someone else. He could have protected Jerusalem without building walls. But that's not what he did. And so when I look at it for us and for our life, what are the things and the relationships that God is calling us to repair before we can move on to the next chapter that God is calling to? See, it's hard to move on when relationships have been broken. It's hard to move on when when friendships have been crushed and crumbled. We we can pretend. We can pretend that it doesn't bother us. We We can pretend we've moved on. We can act tough like the emotions aren't there. We can tell other people that everything is okay, like the memories are really just our imagination. It wasn't that great anyway. I mean, yeah, we hung out for a while, but whatever. Like the hurt that we feel or the hurt that we've caused isn't as real and damaging to us or someone else as it really is, and we know that it is. And then we start to blame. We blame other people or ourselves because now we're feeling convicted. And yet what Nehemiah did is he went to God and he prayed and he confessed his sin. 
And sometimes what we do is we just blame others to the point that we convince ourselves, I don't have to do anything about it at all. It's not my fault. I didn't cause the break. I wasn't the one that did the thing. I wasn't the one that stopped making phone calls. We blame others, and then we have this idea that we're going to feel better about moving on, like there's nothing we can do about it anyway. So what about you? Where are you today? Is God maybe calling you to repair something that's been broken, a broken relationship, a broken friendship? Maybe for you, you're putting it off because you know that God is calling you to invest the very best of what you have to rebuild a broken marriage, and you just don't want to. Maybe what it is that God is calling and tugging on your heart to to repair a broken relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's time to step up and rebuild or build for the first time the spiritual walls that God's called you to build to protect your home and family. Maybe you were there a while ago and you ignored it and the walls came down. See, whatever it is, whatever it might be, we can learn from Nehemiah that we have to recognize that something is broken and in need of repair before we can do anything about it. And then we start to pray. Because if we just go off and try to fix it on our own, there's a very good chance we're going to make it worse. We're going to make it worse than it ever was. And so after we start to pray, we start to seek God's heart about, is God calling you to the work of repairing? And, and be clear, I understand this. There are some relationships that are best left in the past. That's a hard one to learn. That's been a hard one for me to learn. Louis Giglio wrote a book and he says, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. See, the people that we draw close to us, they have a voice, and sometimes that voice isn't in our best interest. Toxic relationships and toxic people are best to leave in the rearview mirror of your life. Because more than likely, they're the ones that are trying to claw their way back and get a seat at your table where they don't belong. But if God is calling you to do the work, if God is putting it on your heart that's a relationship that needs attention and mending, start to pray. And then don't be afraid to act. You can't pray that somebody else does the right thing. If God's put it on your heart, you're the one that God's calling. Now, probably the best place to start is to do what Nehemiah did, and that's to begin with a prayer of confession. God, you know what? I've been living the last 17 years knowing that he was the one that goofed up. She was the one that did me wrong. But I have to acknowledge just between you and me, God, I know what I did. I know how I helped to cause the problem. Whatever it is that we might have done to cause the damage, we have to claim and accept our responsibility. It's entirely possible that the other person will never accept your efforts. They will never accept you asking for forgiveness. They'll never take your phone call. You know what? That's not up to you. That's up to them. Maybe what God is doing is just simply trying to repair your heart in the process. And he's saying, at least you have to try. See, Nehemiah, he did a great job of being bold and strong and courageous in the face of violent opposition. The enemy had these people being absolutely cruel to the point of saying they were going to take his life. He didn't back down. He spoke God's truth to God's people. And that's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus is speak God's truth to God's people, knowing full well we live in a world that's going to oppose that. The world is going to fight back loudly and unfairly and angrily, and it will be personal. See, when we begin to live for Jesus and to stand up and speak out, we will face opposition. 
The Bible is full of men and women who did exactly what God told them to do, and they still faced opposition. Go back and think about Noah, the man that God called to build the ark in the middle of what amounted to was nothing but dry land. Everybody around him had to have thought he was an old fool and an idiot. What are you building a monster boat out in the middle of nowhere for? And when the rain started coming, every one of those people were the ones that said, hey, can we get on? you got plenty of room. And Noah said, I'm just listening to God, sorry. How about Moses? He faced opposition. He faced opposition from Pharaoh. And then when Pharaoh finally sent Moses and the people free, we talked about this not so long ago, the opposition he faced was from the people he was saving. They didn't want to worship God. That God wasn't doing them any favors. They were convinced. They just wanted to go back to Egypt. So they rebel against Moses and they rebel against God. They ignore him. They ignore God. David and Solomon doing exactly what God called them to do. And it was the people closest to them, the people that they knew their best, their own friends and family that turned on them. And then, of course, there's Jesus, who never for one moment of his life stepped outside of God's will. Lied about, mocked, ridiculed, lied to, falsely accused, falsely charged, beaten, and crucified. Living for God isn't always easy. Opposition will always come. And it will come from the most unexpected and often the most trusted people the moment you begin to do something different in God's kingdom. I have heard it's part of what caused us to want to plant this church from so many people in my two and a half decades of ministry. They love God, but they can't stand people in churches because people are who hurt them. And my guess is a lot of you have a similar story. But you know what? Your church experience has been, you know, warm or cold. Maybe it's been hot and it's been awesome for a while. But, you know, for the most part, it's been okay. The problem that you've had is people in churches. Why? Because we expect that they agree on some things like we do, that we're going to treat each other well with respect and kindness, and we're not going to throw each other under the bus or take our knees out or start gossiping about each other. And when it happens, we blame the church because, well, it would make sense, wouldn't it? So often what ends up happening is people let us down, and they are the ones that the enemy uses to get at us. When God asks you to build something or do something different, the enemy will assign someone to tear it down. The enemy will assign someone to poison it, to ruin it, to crush it, or to discredit it. Opposition should be expected. When when we know that being people who are faithful to Jesus... We're just trying to do God's call, but there, see, there's people out there that want to take credit for it. They want to take credit for your call. They want to take credit for your bravery or your courage. And we need to take this lesson from Nehemiah, and we need to adjust our attitude. And we need to pray accordingly and not be surprised. See, God asks for our faithfulness. He'll take care of everything else. But what God isn't looking for, and this is a message the church needs to hear, and by the church I mean the people in it, God is not looking for critical Christians. You don't have to go very far. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've had a day or a moment where you've been one of them. God's not looking for critical Christians. There's too many of those already. When I face critics now, my question isn't how accurate your criticism is. My question is how active is your evangelism? What are you doing about it? It's easy to discredit and tear things down, but what are you doing to build something for God? God needs Christians who will step up and stand up. 
doing something less than perfect is better than doing nothing at all. Paul talks about that in Philippians. He's talking about people who get the gospel wrong, their theology isn't quite right. They're even preaching for selfish moment, uh, motives because they like the attention. And Paul says, you know what? I rejoice in all of it because the name of Christ is being spoken. Critics are everywhere. It's easy to be a critic. All you need is an opinion. It's a little harder to be faithful. There's this new movie out, Jesus Revolution, and oh man, have I gotten an earful about that over the last couple of weeks. You've maybe read some of it yourself. All the criticism about the movie, and yet I say, you know what, they're getting a message across. Yeah, the people in the movie aren't perfect church people, but that's who Jesus came for. We're not perfect church people. And I think the example of the Bible is the thief on the cross. He didn't do anything right. There was not one thing he did that followed what we call the New Testament model to to come to faith. He didn't do anything right at all. There was no confession. He acknowledged Jesus must have been the Son of God. There was no confession of his sins. He certainly didn't have time to repent. He never got baptized. And yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I think thanks be to God for God's grace in our salvation, even when we try to make it about rules and religion and tradition and following all the right steps. We try to make it about us when it's all about Jesus in the first place. You know something else that God doesn't need? God doesn't need gossiping Christians. There's too many out there already, gossiping Christians and just people in general. God isn't calling Christians to threaten and call out and start rumors and spread lies about people they go to church with or even people in other churches. God is looking for men and women who will be strong and courageous and bold as they stand against people, sometimes even church people, against politicians and governments, institutions and ideologies that will steer people away from God. See, here's what the enemy knows. If he can get us to focus on anything but Jesus... He can get us to focus on everything but Jesus. And gossiping does a great job of that. Great things are always opposed by jealous and frightened people who don't create anything themselves. God is looking for you and for me to be bold and to stand strong and courageous against a world that is selling us and our children nothing but lies. And so we will stand strong and we will be courageous, realizing that we're sinners. We are imperfect messengers. We don't get it right. But what's important is that we point people to Jesus, not to ourselves. We need to stand for our families, for our churches, for our schools, our communities, our children. For the people that God has called us to care for and to reach. The imperfect messengers talking about the perfect Son of God. I hope, I truly do, you hear me talk about this a lot. I hope that God is calling you to help us in building and rebuilding the culture around us that he's building at the open door. See, God is repairing all kinds of stuff here. And maybe you don't get to see or hear enough about it. God is repairing broken relationships. God is repairing lives that have been stolen by addiction. God is restoring marriages. God is bringing kids back to a relationship with him. He's reaching older students that are able to have stronger relationships with families. And I guess my prayer is that like Nehemiah, we want to work against the forces of the enemy of God, against the powers and the principalities and the people who would work against us, not by arguing, but by praying. And when we do that, we can accomplish the mission that God has called us to. And it's very, very simple. Love Jesus, love people, 
and teach people to love Jesus. And it's incredible to me, with that simple mission statement, it's amazing the opposition that it draws. Loving Jesus, loving people, and teaching people to love Jesus should be a pretty simple thing. It's who we are and it's what we're about. And my hope and my prayer is that you will join me being men and women and young people like Nehemiah who face that opposition, not with arguments, not with turning and running the other way, not being a part of that team, but rather by prayer. Because when we face the opposition with prayer, there is absolutely nothing that God can't do us, do in us and with us and through us. Let's pray. God, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for the lesson that we have from his life and from what you put on his heart. The way that you called a guy that seems to be completely incapable of doing what he did. A guy that worked in the court. He lived a pretty easy life. Suddenly travels to a broken down, crumbled city and a broken down wall. And he, he pulls people together and resources together. He faces opposition that is just absolutely incredible. And he does what's impossible outside of you. He rebuilds all of it in 52 days. And when it was done, God, he didn't ask for recognition or praise for himself. What he did was he made sure the people heard and understood who they were and whose they were, that all of it was about you. And God, our prayer here would just simply be that everything we do, all that we do, is all about you. That it, we proclaim the name of Jesus, that we love people just like we love Jesus, and we teach them to love him. God, it's simple, but it's hard to carry out. And without you and without being people of prayer, it'll never happen. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what it is that you're doing through this place and the people of this place. And God, thank you. We know that there's nothing on this earth, no one, no power, that can stop what it is that you have called us to do and what you are doing in us and with us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last thought is this. Nehemiah was an ordinary guy. He was an ordinary guy, just like you and I are ordinary men and women. He heard about a problem. He prayed and he acted. And because he did, you can visit Jerusalem, the ancient city on a hill today. So my what if question for you as you're walking out today, we got one more song before you go. My what if is this. What might God do to change the future if you were willing to pray and act about something that needs repair in your life. Maybe it's a relationship with the person. Maybe it's whatever it is that God's put on your heart. How might you change the future? How might God change the future through you if rather than ignore it, you took that as a godly discontent and chose to pray on it and act?